If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 31. 1 Samuel chapter 31. We'll be uh, reading the whole chapter here in just a moment. Uh, If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, that's okay. You can open up to page 348 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. 348 in the Pew Bible, and you can follow along there if you'd like to. If you don't have a Bible, why don't you take that one with you, and uh, we'll replace it. And we'd love for that to be a a gift from us to you. If you look at that one and say, I don't really want to carry a hardback Pew Bible around with me, I can understand that. Come to me if you don't have a Bible, and I'll get you a Bible. We'd love to give you a Bible here at First Baptist Church if you don't have a Bible. We want people to have God's Word. So let me know. If you, if you need a Bible, we'll, we'll get you one. And so um, 1 Samuel chapter 31, as you're opening up there, uh, let me mention um, one thing to you. I think Woody's already mentioned it earlier, uh, but uh, Easter is coming up soon. And I just want to remind everyone that we do have invitations available for you. So those are available um, at the exits today. And so we'd love for you to grab a couple of those Let's just say you're a guest here and you're like, I feel weird inviting other people. That's okay. You can still invite others and say, hey, why don't you come with me to this Easter service? Let's listen to this guy together. You tell me if it's weird or not or something like that, you know? And so uh, you guys can bring those uh, with you and invite folks to church. So if you have your Bibles open there to 1 Samuel chapter 31, um, why don't you go and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not. For he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword. He also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants, inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night 
and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Let's pray together. O oh God, help us to see the surety and often uh, the frightfulness of your word. But at the same time, O oh God, more than any of those things, I pray we will see your grace on display this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The news spread like wildfire. Part of why it spread so quickly was not only its importance, but the sheer shock factor to all who heard it. It made them want to, I would assume, tell the next person, and then the next person, and so on and so forth. In fact, the unthinkable had happened, and in less than a month, the news had traveled a long way to a small town in Roman territory on the coast of northern Africa. The seemingly invincible city of Rome, the couriers and messengers had communicated, had been sacked by barbarians. And the world, as many knew it, was no longer the same. The bishop of that small city on the coast of northern Africa, called Hippo, immediately began to appoint his church to God. Um, within a month, uh, less than a month, after the sack of Rome, uh, this bishop was already preaching on the sack of Rome, addressing it in his sermons. He immediately began pointing to God in the midst of such challenging news. He continued to help his church think through these things, to help the world in which he lived process what it means to live in the unthinkable, a weakening Roman Empire. Something that had not been true ever. A Rome in decline. A Rome that now had come to be so associated with Christianity that the core of how many people felt about the surety of the world had begun to shake. This bishop in addressing this eventually, years later, completed a book. And thus we have now, even now, a book that helps us in days like this by Augustine, uh, who many of you have probably heard of, a book called The City of God, which now for more than a millennium has helped its readers understand what it means for God to be building an everlasting city in the midst of a fallen world. In this book, Augustine contrasts the city of man, this fallen world, the world in which we live, the things we can see, the world in which Rome can be ransacked, he contrasts it with the city of God, the city God is building. And the fact, he mentions it, and we know now as well, we can see the way that so often it's hard to see where the city of man ends and the city of God begins. But what was true then is true now. The people of God know where to go when things get awful, when bad news comes. We may not always do what we're supposed to do in this respect, but we know where we ought to go. We know where we can only find answers. I can remember as a young man in high school uh, in uh, the early days after 9-11, probably the cataclysmic event of most of our lives, if I had to guess, um, certainly in mine, the thing that, was, that shook me to my core, maybe more than anything else 
in my life in terms of national or international news. I can remember how mo- most people in that time seemed to get a little more religious. We had extra prayer meetings. We would go to church and pray. Many of you have memories and recollections of those days. We know what to do when our life seems to be crumbling. We know what to do when our spouse leaves, when our loved one dies, when wars rage, when the towers fall, when the king is dead. We turn to God We see the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of God. And we seek His comfort. And we seek comfort in His goodness and in His power. Here we see in this text a cataclysm. An apocalypse, if you will. An unraveling of things. The king who was hired by the people to fight their battles, to win against the nations, is suddenly lost. He's dead. And not only that, his sons are dead. Israel was, is without a king and without an heir. And they seemingly are without hope as their cities are being overrun by Philistines. This morning, in light of this tragic chapter, I want to help you build pathways to God for the tragedies of life. One day or another, something will rattle you to your core. You will be shaken. We live in a world that shakes, don't we? It's just not stable. It tends to shake us. And it's inevitable that one of us or all of us in this room will eventually be shaken too. What pathways will you take in those moments? I I hope this morning to show you three truths that I think will help you turn to God and cling to God when it seems like things are falling apart. When it seems like Nothing is stable. When tragedy or cataclysm hits your life, where do we go? I want to encourage you and press upon you to go to God this morning. Three truths today. Here's the first. God's glory is worth everything. The first thing we must remember in the midst of tragedy is that God's glory is worth everything. Now, as you read the book of 1 Samuel, and if you haven't before, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, We've been preaching through 1 Samuel now for a while, but you will be mesmerized. I bet those who have been here will will testify to this truth. You'll be mesmerized by what a good story it is. It's a beautiful, compelling um, story. And so as you read this, the author knows what he's doing. He's a good author. And so if you back up a few chapters, we're in chapter 31. If you back up to chapter 28, we are left in suspense. Saul, the king, unable to hear from God and unable to get direction from God, has resorted to the illegal activity of consulting a medium. And when he does so, God allows the spirit of Samuel to speak to him and to reiterate to him his doom. That he will no longer be king, and Samuel reminds him, and tomorrow you and your family will be here with me. Well, the author then leaves us there. Saul goes out into the night and he leaves us there. On the night before this battle, the author leaves us and takes us to David and sort of shows us what David has been up to and what David has been doing. And for two chapters, we're thinking about David, but all the while in the back of our minds, we're wondering what in the world is going to happen to Saul? What is going to happen to Israel? And so in the couple of chapters that we've spent looking at David and thinking about David, we're running a little late. 
The narrator takes us back when the action has already started. Notice the way the Bible says this. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So we don't really get a sense of exactly all that Saul has been doing between uh, leaving the witch's house and now, except that we would assume he's preparing for battle and getting ready and then fighting the battle. We come in right in the middle of the action. The Philistines are slaying Israelites, and as the Israelites flee, they come to Mount Gilboa, and the Philistines are able to catch up with them, and they overtake Saul and his sons. All three of sons, Saul's sons are killed, including Jonathan. Now, I think you know this. I've told many of you this and said this in the sermon, sermons here as well. Jonathan is probably my favorite character in the Bible. Um, we're in 1 Samuel right now. We're finishing 1 Samuel today. Um, and then we'll start in the fall. We're going to take a little break and, uh, in the New Testament and 1 John over the summer. And then in the fall, we'll be back in 2 Samuel to finish out the story. 1 2 Samuel are originally a single story, but presumably due to scroll length, over time they were split up into 1 and 2 Samuel. It's a blessing. We can get all the books of the Bible in one book. Isn't that a blessing? Something to just consider today. We don't have to worry about scroll length uh, here today. All that being said, First uh, and Second Samuel are a singular story, and throughout all of First and Second Samuel, you, we are introduced to multiple royal figures, people who are kings or would be kings, or people in the process of becoming kings, sons of kings, all sorts of kings. And the only royal figure that figures prominently in First and Second Samuel, the only king or would be king. In all of First and Second Samuel, without a major recorded sin, the only one who is presented universally in the Samuel narrative as righteous, as committed to the Lord, as doing the right thing, is Saul's son, Jonathan. In fact, often the author intentionally contrasts Saul's wicked behavior and Jonathan's good behavior. And so Jonathan, the faithful son of Saul, this great son of Israel, dies defending his father and his country. And nothing seems like more of a waste than the death of Jonathan. That through no fault of his own, no seeming actions of his own, he dies the same day as his dad, under the same judgment it might seem as his dad. A tragic figure indeed if all our eyes can see is the glory of kingship, if all our eyes can see is the glory of the battlefield, if all our eyes can see is the glory of what our eyes can see, but if we can see the glory of godliness, if we can see the glory of faithfulness, we can see that Jonathan's life was no tragedy. Dale Ralph Davis, one of my favorite commentators on First and Second Samuel, said this. He asked this question, and I think he stated it so well. Was it tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose? Jonathan laid down a kingdom that was shaken, a kingdom that he knew he could not have but entered into, even upon his ignoble death, entered into a kingdom he could not lose. You see, brothers and sisters, Jonathan's life was not a tragedy because the glory of God is worth everything. 
Jonathan could see something that almost no one else could see, and certainly his father could not see, and that was the way that God was at work in the life of David. He was, to read backward into the faith that Jonathan had, he was gospel-centered. He recognized what God was doing through the life of David to bring a Messiah into the world, and he embraced that rather than warring against it and fighting against it like his dad did. You see, he recognized that God's promises that were flowing through history in the people of Israel, he recognized that they were to terminate. They were to find their fulfillment in a seed of Abraham. And Jonathan recognized that those promises were flowing through David as God's chosen one. And rather than fight against it, Jonathan gave literally everything for the glory of God. And I think Jonathan would say, even to this moment, God's glory was worth everything. Brothers and sisters, I get it. Your fear, your worry that you may lose everything for the sake of the gospel, I promise you there's nothing you put in the hands of Jesus that you'll ever lose. You may lose it in this life, and, and certainly our losses are real in this life. I don't mean to to try to spiritualize whatever difficulties and trials you're going through in a way that's unhelpful to you. But I want you to know there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no challenge, there's no trial, there's no worry, there's no fear, there's no tragedy, there's no cataclysm that you put in the arms of Christ by faith that He cannot or will not heal through the gospel that He has procured for us through His death and his resurrection. There's nothing in this life, there's nothing, there's no loss in this life that a good resurrection can't fix. I believe it with all my heart. So I want you to remember when trials come that God's glory is worth everything. But the second thing I want you to be reminded of this morning is this, God's word is totally sure. God's word is totally sure. If you're keeping score, that's one point down, This is the second point, okay? God's word is totally sure. As the battle presses on, we learn in verse 3 that Saul um, is caught up with by the archers in particular. And they found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. He shot through with an arrow or arrows. And at this point, it begins to dawn on Saul what's going to happen to him if he falls into the hands of the Philistines. Have you thought about, I mentioned Rome being sacked by barbarians earlier. Think about the way we use the term barbarian. Have you guys thought about this before? Uh, barbarians are people who are uncouth and ruthless and, and, and mean-spirited, all these different kinds of things. We use that term in a Roman sense. Well, we use the word Philistine in that sense as well, someone who's uncultured or uncouth. We sometimes look at the Old Testament and say, why would God act this way? Why would God bring judgment on the Amalekites? Why would God want to bring judgment on the Philistines? And you begin to see their behavior and the way their behavior is recorded here in a little bit. What will the Philistines do? They'll cut off their head. They'll pin their bodies to walls. We know that the Amalekites were slave traders, people who dealt in what the Bible calls man-stealing, something that is an absolute sin according to the eyes of God. It's not like these are wholesome, sweet people that the Israelite people are dealing with, and God has every right to judge their wickedness and their behavior. All that being said, Saul begins to realize what the Amalekites are going to do. 
And if you think about what they did with his and his son's dead bodies, you can imagine what they would do if they found their bodies alive. It would not be a pretty sight. And so Saul begins to beg his armor bearer to go ahead and put him out of his misery to save him from this fate with the Philistines. And of course, rightfully, understandably, in keeping with the way the narrative presents David over and over and over again, the armor bearer refuses to lay a hand on the anointed one of God. And so Saul has to resort to his own devices and the glory of Israel, her king, who stood head and shoulders over everyone else, riddled through with Philistine arrows, takes his own life, falling on his own sword. Once the people of Israel realize what's happened, we see in verse 7 that they begin to abandon their cities. And so the battle of Mount Gilboa is an unmitigated victory for the Philistines. Gilboa is sort of halfway between northern Israel and the southern portion of what we would call Israel, which is Judah or Judea. And so and winning there at Gilboa, they kind of split things in half. People abandon and perhaps flee one way or the other. And the Philistines are able to inhabit those cities. And, and it really constitutes a great military victory to be able to cut their enemy in half in this way and inhabit their lands. I want you to understand this, brothers and sisters. I want you to to feel this and feel the weight of this, and I don't say this lightly. But simply put, this is what God said would happen. God told Saul that this would happen. Saul sinned against God. Saul abandoned what the Lord had commanded him to do. He refused to carry out and mete out God's justice on others. And so Saul receives God's justice himself. And I I think it's a good reminder for all of us here today just to simply be reminded God means what he says. God's word is sure. In chapter 15, God told Saul he would strip the kingdom from him and from his line. It's reiterated again, as I mentioned earlier, by Samuel in chapter 28, when Saul consults the witch. And here we see in chapter 31, it comes to pass. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the way that God has been at work in the narrative of 1 Samuel. God does what God is going to do. No one can stand before the glory of Israel. At the beginning of the narrative, Yahweh beheads the Philistines' god, Dagon. Do you remember this? It falls prostrate uh, down before him. And his head eventually chops, falls off when the Ark of the Covenant is in the temple of Dagon. And then Saul's estranged servant, David, beheaded the Philistine champion, Goliath. And so we see there are two beheadings so far in the book of 1 Samuel. And now we see, though, in verse 9, that the Philistines have beheaded Israel's king. So all throughout this narrative, we see the fertility god, Dagon, great and mighty and viral. We see the professional warrior, Goliath, a giant striking fear in the heart of all people, and the handsome, tall, strong and mighty King Saul all lose their heads before God in this narrative. David says it well in 2 Samuel 1, how the mighty 
have fallen. Who can stand before the God of Israel? The one that Israel had recruited to fight their battles instead of Yahweh is now nothing but a whisper of good news on the lips of pagan couriers. Eventually, his body will be pinned to a pagan wall. He has met the very same fate as the enemies of God because he chose to be God's enemy instead of embracing and walking in the friendship which God had given him. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, God keeps His Word. His Word never fails. His Word is sure. One of the most gracious and loving things you will ever hear in your life is this. God hates sin. God hates sin. We cannot run and hide from the justice of God in the Bible. God's judgment against sin is sure. It's troubling, of course, it's troubling. It's difficult to hear, yes, it's difficult to hear, it's difficult to say, but the wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible tells us. We can call it old-fashioned, we can call it out of date, we can call it out of step with love, we can call it not with the times, we can call it whatever we want, but what God says is sin is sin, and God's opinion of sin has not changed. God hates sin. He hates it. But I want you to know something else. It's good that God hates sin. You want God to hate sin, whether you realize it or not. Consider for a moment, you you may think about this generally speaking, what a harsh God that is, but what about the sins that have been committed against you? What about the sins that have committed against you? Uh, What if our local government or our local uh, branch of government that's over meeting out justice just all of a sudden decided to stop punishing criminals, to stop trying to execute justice? None of us would like that. None of us would feel comfortable with that. Don't you see how there's a comfort in the fact that God is good and just and righteous and that He judges sin, that God, however bad you think the world is, God hates it more. He doesn't want the world to be the way it is, and so he has made a plan to fix it. God's word is totally sure, and in the most difficult moments of life, it's a good thing to know because we do not only read in the Bible of God's judgment. That's not the only thing the scripture speaks of. Be so careful to to do the Piccadilly approach, the Morrison's approach in the Bible. I'm not a big fan of that, but I like this. We don't just read about God's judgment and God's hatred of sin in the Bible. We also read about God's love and mercy. Sure, God made a promise to Saul, and he kept his promise, right? I'm going to strip the kingship from you. But who else did God make a promise to in this book? God also made a promise to David that he would establish his kingdom, that he would make him king And we recognize that through that promise, God has promised that all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's through that promise that God is bringing Jesus to the world. And that reminds us then of this last point, leads us to the last point, the third point. And it's this, God's faithfulness is never ending. God's faithfulness is never ending. This is the day to end all days in the page of the Bible. It is an unmitigated disaster. Perhaps the only seemingly redeemable fact of this day is the great act of the men of Jabesh Gilead. One of, one of 
Saul's first actions as king was to deliver these people from the Philistines. And now when they hear what has happened to the bodies of Saul and his sons, in the cover of night they go on a daring mission and recover their bodies and retrieve their bones. They burn them and they give them a proper burial. Chapter 11, Saul had delivered these people. But we see this little note of hope at the end of the chapter. A little reminder leading into the rest of the book in 2 Samuel of God's goodness and kindness to His people. God is working for the good of His people, Israel. God is bringing about salvation in the midst of this terrible day. This is, as one author has called it, God's glory in salvation through judgment. In judging Saul and bringing Saul low and taking the throne from Saul, God is establishing the eternal throne of Christ through the temporary throne of David. This is what God is doing. The sunset of Saul into the judgment of God is also the dawn of David and the kingship of David, the harbinger of the morning star himself. God is at work in these events to bring His Son into the world. And in the midst of His judgment, He is actually blessing His people. Not only those who were alive when these things happened, not only those who read this when it was written, but those of us to whom the word of life has come even now, God was at work for our salvation. We live in the middle of a storm front. And it's the storm front of the ages. And to live in the storm front of the ages, we must expect turbulence. This is a time that is already and not yet. Sin runs rampant and the serpent still rages. The devil is at work in the world, but we also recognize the new age has dawned and the Spirit works mightily and the Lord is building His church. There will be difficult times in these moments. There will be earthquakes and famine and tornadoes and wars and rumors of wars. There will be moments when it seems like the world is ending, but the beauty of what God is doing on the other end of His judgment is even when the world ends, that will be a good day for Christians. We don't fear it. We long for it. We pray for it. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. God is there. God is at work. And God has got you in His hand no matter what. No matter what happens. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. And the kingdoms of this world totter and shake and fade into nothing. They evaporate into dust. Nations come and nations go. And history often feels like chaos. But the good news is that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And the God who is in control of all things is moving all of history inexorably toward the moment when He will reveal His Son in glory to all people at once. We can take hope. We can trust the Lord no matter what. Even when the King is dead, we have a King who will never die. Even in the moment when things seemed the lowest, The greatest cataclysm that could ever be. When God Himself was nailed to a Roman cross, caught in the jaws 
clenched in the jaws of the might of a military machine that seemed like it would last forever and ever and ever. Even in that very moment when his followers left dejected and sad and afraid, even in that moment, it seemed like Satan had won. It seemed like sin had won. It seemed like whatever hope there might be was dead. Even when the king is dead, though, we have a king who will never die. And three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead in triumph and in glory. And the promise of resurrection is rooted in His, and we have a hope that can never die. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. And amen. Long live the King.